0: Sing great. Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Having seen so much of judgment in our look into the last days, it'll be quite the contrast to consider the glorious event of the coming Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Continuing in Revelation chapter 19, Pastor Phil shares on this today. Let's listen.
1: This is one of the greatest events in the history of the world, the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. But listen, to fully understand and appreciate what is going on here, we need to know something of Jewish marriage customs. There were several steps or stages that were involved in a typical Jewish marriage. Now, I I thought that this would be a good place to kind of talk about this, since this is one of the greatest events in the history of the world, the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. And we know about this. We've read it many times. And and yet, if you don't really understand Jewish marriage customs, you're going to miss a lot of the impact of what's going on here. First of all, a typical Jewish marriage started out with what was called the engagement. Most marriages back then were arranged by the fathers of the bride and groom many times while they were still quite young and sometimes even before they were born. I mean, you're a Jewish family and you know another Jewish family. You're very close friends. And so the fathers get together even before the any kids are born. They say, look, if you have a son and I have a daughter, let's hook them up, okay? Or vice versa, all right? And then they make this, this kind of arrangement, this engagement, sometimes even before the children are born. And the engagement amounted to a contract of marriage where the man and woman were promised to be given to each other by their fathers. You see, <laughs> the Jewish people looked at marriage as being far too important to be left up to the decision-making skills of the younger generation. They figured, you know, this society depends on the strength and stability of marriage and family. I'm going to let my, my teenager make that decision? No way. You know, fathers typically made those decisions, and it was up to them to arrange with other fathers who your kids were going to marry. Well, that eventually led to the second stage, which was called the betrothal period. So at this point, the bride, and she was usually about 12 to 15, the groom wasn't much older than that, uh, they would come together to meet, perhaps for the first time in their lives. That was often the case. And at that time, the father of the groom would negotiate the dowry or the what well, was also known as the bride price with the father of the bride. And the bride price or the dowry would be based upon three variables. First, it would be predicated upon the father's wealth. If the father of the groom was a rich man, well, then he would give more because otherwise you would look like a cheapskate. And, you know, you don't want to look like a cheapskate. Second, the price would be determined by the bride's worth. I mean, if she was very attractive or if she had certain gifts that she was good at. I mean, she was great at um, making clothing and things or whatever. She had other skills well, then she'd be worth more. And so the bride price would be set at a higher price. Thirdly, the price was based upon the groom's work. That is, in some cases, it was up to the groom to pay the price himself. Now, you remember Jacob. Jacob went to a far country, and he chose his own bride, Rachel. And he negotiated with her father, Laban, the bride price, which was, in Jacob's case, he was going to work seven years to pay Laban to give you know, his daughter to Jacob to be a wife. That was the bride price or the dowry that Jacob was willing to pay seven years of labor labor to get Rachel to be his wife. Now, typically what would happen is the father of the bride would take this money, this bride price or this dowry, and he was supposed to set aside a good chunk for his daughter just in case her husband died poor. Or he divorced her, she'd have something to fall back on. Of course, that didn't always happen. And we learn in Genesis 31, verse 15, that Rachel and Leah were upset with their father, Laban, who was Mr. Conniver, because he had, and I'm quoting, devoured their money. In other words, he took their dowry and he spent it. He didn't keep it for them. Now, the remainder of the dowry was actually to be kept by the bride's father as compensation. For what? Well, because his daughter couldn't bear the family name. I mean, that would be, of course, the husband's role. She really couldn't, uh, you know, work in the family business or on the family farm. So she was not an asset that way. A farmhand, of course, worked and produced things and, and worked around the farm or the family ranch. And a daughter didn't do that. Also, a daughter, you know, couldn't take over the family business because, of course, if she married... Uh, she would have to work at her husband's family's ranch. So consequently, boys were looked upon as an asset, and girls were looked upon as a liability. And the mentality went something like this, that, look, I've had to raise this child from the time she was just a little girl. I've had to feed her and clothe her. i got to recoup some of my losses. I can't, you know, I can't use her in the fields. She's going to get married and go away. I mean, i got to recoup some of this. Girls, I'm sorry. That's how they looked upon it, all right? so at this point, you know, they would negotiate this bride price. And uh, when they did, at least a portion of it was laid upon the table. And a contract would be signed to further validate this arrangement or this agreement. And then the actual marriage ceremony would take place, at which time the bride and the groom exchange vows in the presence of their family and friends. At this point, the couple was considered legally married. And their relationship could only be severed by formal divorce, just as if they'd been married for many years. In fact, if the husband died during this betrothal period, the bride was considered a widow. That's how much they were considered legally married. Now, to celebrate this stage of the relationship, the couple would take a cup of wine and they would both drink from it. And the cup of wine symbolized the joy that they had now publicly shared their vows with one another. We, we still have a tradition today, whereby, you know, at the reception, uh, after the couple has uh, said their vows to each other and are married, then at the reception, of course, usually the best man will offer a toast. That's kind of the idea. It comes from this practice. That, you know, after the vows were entered into, they would take a cup of wine. They would both drink from it because now they had publicly shared their vows. Now they were legally married and so on. Um, The only problem here was that during this period, even though the couple was considered legally married, the marriage was not consummated and they didn't live together. Not yet. And that gave rise to the next phase of this whole thing this whole Jewish marriage custom, and that was what was called the preparation of the bridal chamber. You see, after the dowry had been paid and the vows had been taken, and now they were legally married, the groom had to go build a place for them to live. And the idea was that he would go to his father's house to build a place for them because... In those days, it was customary for the couple to live with his parents on their property because that's where his inheritance was, and that's where his land was. And so he would then go to his father's house to build them a place, okay? He would say to her, honey, you know, I love you. We're legally married, but, you know, we can't consummate this marriage until I go and prepare a place for us to live, the bridal chamber. And so I have to leave now. And this was all part of the betrothal period. This could take another 12 to 18 months, although it was usually more like 12. And during this betrothal period, the man would prepare a place for them to live, and how he would do it was simply to add on to his father's existing house. He would just build a room addition on Uh, That was what the bridal chamber was, just an apartment that was actually built onto uh, his father's house, where he then made a dwelling place for them to live in after the betrothal period ended and the marriage was consummated. And so for the next year or so, he would be gone preparing a place for them to live in. And he would tell her, honey, I know it's going to be hard, and certainly she missed him like crazy. But he said, look, it's not going to be forever. I'm going to work as hard as I can Prepare this place for us. I'm going to come back and get you. And after I get you, we're never going to be separated again. But guess what? When he finished the bridal chamber, the tradition was that the man didn't have the right to say, "Okay, great, I'm finished. I'm going to go get my bride. He didn't have that authority. That right was reserved for his father, who alone had the authority to say, when the bridal chamber was totally finished and the son could go claim his bride. So consequently, the bridegroom couldn't give her a date when he was coming back to get her because, you know, that right was reserved for the father. All he could say was, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I don't know the exact day and hour I'm going to be back because only my father knows that. It's up to him. And Jewish fathers were kind of rascals. They had some fun with this, as you can imagine. Because, you know, when the son would get everything done... You know, he'd be all excited. You know, he had been working on this thing for, what, you know, 12, 15 months or whatever. And he'd finally get the thing done. He was all excited. Dad, Dad, I'm done, I'm done. Can I go get my bride? And the father would kind of, you know, give it to him. Father would walk around and go, well, you know, I'm not so sure. I like the way you hung that door. I mean, oh, come on, are you kidding me? Look at this. You just threw this together. Come on. you got to really make this perfect. I mean, you're going to be living here with your bride. You know, you got to really make sure it's, it's really what it's supposed to be. And so he was, okay, daddy, run around, try to fix it. Just make it perfect, right? Because that was the idea. Now, this would eventually then give rise to the final phase of this whole thing where the bridegroom would go and get his bride. And uh, during this betrothal period, while he was working, preparing a place for them to live, a liaison was appointed who would keep the bride updated And would take messages back and forth between the bride and the bridegroom. And this special person, he was called the friend of the bridegroom. Uh, Today, uh, you know, the best man is kind of like the closest thing we have to this, all right? And so this friend of the bridegroom, he was the liaison, he was the go between. He kept the bride and the groom in contact with each other. Who does he remind you of today? The Holy Spirit. But he would kind of, you know, pass, you know, notes and things, I guess you'd call it, uh, uh, between the two of them and uh, take messages back and forth. And, uh, you know, he would keep an eye on the progress of the bridal chamber and would send progress reports back to the bride and her bridesmaids on how things were going. So much so that they knew about when the bridal chamber was going to be finished. I mean, you know, they didn't know the exact day and hour, but they knew it was getting very close. And the custom of those Jewish fathers was typically to wait until the middle of the night and then for the father to wake his son up and say, Hey, son, it's time. Go get your bride. Now, of course, when he heard that, man, when he heard his dad say, Look, time has come. Go and claim your bride. I mean, he jumped out of bed, threw his clothes on, quickly gathered his friends, and they went running through the streets of Jerusalem or whatever village they were living in, blowing trumpets and shouting with excitement. And that trumpet blowing and those shouts of excitement were the only warning the bride had that her bridegroom was coming. It was the job of the bridesmaids to be watching for the bridegroom's coming. See, they were getting progress reports from the best man. They knew about when the, bride was, the groom was going to be coming for her, and when it looked like they were getting really close. And it could be any time the girls kind of started what was called like, a, a, we would call a candlelight vigil. Only it wasn't candles they used. It was oil-burning lamps. Because this guy could be coming at any time. You had to be ready. Whenever the father said, go get her son, and usually, you know, it was in the middle of the night, and the girls knew that. The girls knew these Jewish fathers. They knew that they loved to do this whole thing, like in the middle of the night. And so the girls had to make sure that their lamps were lit. They had oil, you know, in reserve. Because they had to be ready when the bridegroom came. Because when the bridegroom and his friends came, man, they stormed the house and they snatched her away. It was literally an abduction. And he would take her back to the father's house, to the bridal chamber, where the best man would stand outside the door while the marriage was consummated. You say, what? Why would the best man stand outside the door of the bridal chamber? waiting for the marriage to be consummated, he would stand outside to wait for word from the groom that his bride was, in fact, a virgin. And, of course, they had ways to know that. And if the bride were indeed a virgin, the wedding celebration would begin and would continue for seven days. If not, if it was determined she was not a virgin, well, the guests would all go home, and the bride would either face divorce or stoning because she was an adulteress. Now, if she was a virgin, the next seven days were the most glorious time of joy and celebration that you can imagine. And anyone caught unprepared was excluded from this celebration. So anyone caught unprepared was not allowed to come in. Once the door had been shut, you were out. You couldn't come in because you weren't prepared. Now, I came across an interesting true story that confirmed uh, how absolutely true to life this really is. And it comes uh, to us from a man by the name of Dr. J. Alexander Finley, who tells of what he experienced in Palestine himself some years ago. He said, we were approaching the gates of a Galilean town, he said, and I caught a sight of ten maidens gaily clad and playing some kind of musical instrument as they danced along the road in front of our car. When I asked what they were doing, the, the uh, dragoman or the interpreter told me that they were going to keep the bride company until her bridegroom arrived. I asked him if there was any chance of seeing the wedding, but he shook his head saying, in effect, it might be tonight or tomorrow night or in a fortnight. Nobody ever knows for certain. Then he went on to explain that one of the great things to do, if you could, at a middle-class wedding in Palestine was to catch the bridal party napping. So the bridegroom comes unexpectedly and sometimes in the middle of the night. It is true that he is required by public opinion to send a man along the street to shout, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, but that may happen at any time. So the bridal party has to be ready to go out into the street at any time to meet him whenever he chooses to come. Other important points are that no one is allowed on the streets after dark without a lighted lamp. And also that when the bridegroom has once arrived and the door has been shut, late comers to the ceremony are not admitted, end quote. So you can see that even in Israel today, these customs are still followed, pretty much as we're reading them in the Bible. Now, although seven days spent in a room addition connected to the groom's father's house where friends and family partied just outside the door, well, it doesn't sound like an ideal honeymoon to us. But you have to understand that in the Jewish culture, being waited on for a week was absolutely glorious. I mean, women worked hard. I mean, you girls work hard today, but man, they really worked hard back then. I mean, it was just a hard life. I mean, they didn't have the luxuries that we have. They didn't have vacations. I mean, it was drudgery. They worked like slaves. And here for a few days, they got to live like queens. That was a big deal. Okay, that was really a big deal. And um, during these seven days, the bride would be hidden. Now, she would be in the bride chamber, hidden away for seven days. Nobody could see her. And uh, the groom, he could come and go. And he would, um, you know, this was kind of, of, uh, we see this in the uh, Gospel of John, where, you know, at the wedding of Cana, all the guests were celebrating, but we don't see the bride. She's hidden away. See? See? And what happened was that she would be kind of hidden away in the bridal chamber and outside the door, uh, her friends and family were having a good time. The groom, he could come and go to welcome guests and to say hi and to bring her back food and gifts, which he did for the entire seven day period. And after seven days, she would emerge to the shouts and applauds of the people and the groom would present his bride to his family, friends And community. Listen, this will be the first time she would stand beside her husband and be officially presented as his wife. At this time, the marriage feast. Now they were already celebrating for seven days, but that technically was not the marriage supper or the feast. At this time, when the bride emerged from the bride chamber, now to be officially recognized as the groom's wife, now everyone launched into another seven days. Of feasting, which is called the marriage feast. Now, of course, all of this parallels the stages of the church, the stages of the marriage of the church to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We see the engagement, right? The Bible says that we have been promised to the Son by the Father from before the foundation of the world, even before we were born. We were promised to the Son by the father the second stage was of course the betrothal or the actual marriage ceremony at which time the bride and groom exchanged vows in the presence of family and friends that occurred when we pledged our love and commitment to Jesus at our conversion and then we were baptized in water in front of friends and family as a symbol of of the marriage covenant that we had just entered into. Just like the wedding ring today is a symbol of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. So when it comes to our marriage to Jesus, as we pledged to him our love and loyalty when we got converted, water baptism becomes the symbol of the marriage covenant with Christ. And of course, it's done very publicly. As far as the bride price went, well, Jesus paid for it himself, When he went to Calvary and gave his life a ransom, a dowry, if you will, to purchase his bride. To celebrate this stage of their relationship, the couple would then take a cup of wine and they would both drink from it. You remember, of course, the night before Jesus' crucifixion in the upper room, sitting with his disciples, who were a part of his bride, the church. He took the cup at one point and he Gave it to each of them and said, take and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. As often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink this cup, remember me. I'm coming back. Every time you drink from this cup, I want you to remember that I had promised that I was going to come back someday. Well, of course, in the Jewish marriage custom, that led to the preparation of the bridal chamber. And after having paid the price of the dowry, the next thing, of course, the young man did was to go away to his father's house to prepare a place for them to live. And, of course, we all know what Jesus said in John 14, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house there are many mansions or dwelling places or apartments. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. But, Matthew 24, verse 36, of that day and hour, Jesus said, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but my Father only. So it's up to the Father to tell the Son when to get his bride, just like in the Jewish marriage custom. Now, when the father did tell the Jewish boy, it's time to go get your bride, as we've already seen, he would quickly round up his closest friends, and they would go running through the streets of their village, blowing trumpets and shouting with excitement. And, of course, this parallels what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The Greek is snatched away. Remember, he would come to his bride's house and snatch her away. I mean, it was an abduction. We're going to be abducted. We're going to be snatched off this earth in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we will always be with the Lord. Remember what he said to his bride Honey, I know it's going to be hard. You're not going to see me for a while. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for us. But when I'm going to come back, I promise you, I'll be back to get you. And after that point, we'll never be separated again. And Paul is saying, you know, when he comes for us and we are taken to meet him in the clouds, at that point, we will always and forever be with him. Now, of course, at that point, then, the bride of Christ is going to be hidden from view for seven years. And during that time, the earth is not going to be celebrating. The earth is going to be judged by God. The next time she will be revealed to stand next to her husband will be when he comes to the earth to present her to the world. And that takes us back to Revelation 19, verse 7, where we see this event unfolding. "'Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready.'" And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, don't let this throw you. In the Greek, the phrase, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, should actually be translated for the marriage supper or feast of the Lamb has come. You see, by this time, We are already married to Jesus, which is made clear by the statement in verse 7. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse
0: Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.